Anytime. Welcome to Meeting of the Minds, August 6th edition. Today we're discussing with Gene Maroney the technique of FM Alexander, which is of interest on many levels. This is him, I think you can see on your shared screen. Most all the pictures of him are when he was old and looks unfortunately very much like Bertrand Russell. So I wanted to have this picture here where he is actually a handsome uh, young man in the looks like Victorian England um, costuming or dress clothes as they had then. Uh, Jean is going to tell us about two things. The first is the technique for being aware of and properly using your body. And the second is the conclusions that she drew from that which are pretty big about how to use your mind. So, Jean, uh, is that your name, Jean? Jean? Uh, Jean? Take over and give sure. us some information. So, I, I'm going to spend a little bit of time just explaining what the Alexander Technique is because I think you need that as context. But it's a little bit difficult to talk about it because it's definitely something that you learn by experience. It's uh, instruction in the constant conscious control of voluntary movement, meaning voluntary movement, meaning not, you know, the heartbeat and stuff like that, things that are controlled by muscles, but as opposed to habitual control of them. Most of us do most of our physical action by habits. You don't think that much about when you walk, how you move your legs. You don't, you know, you just... If, if you know to monitor that, you've actually had some training in conscious control of your body. And the kinds of things that are involved are recognizing that you've got a habit going, uh, pausing so that you do not actually act on the habit, recognizing that your sense of where your body is can be completely wrong. You can think that you're standing up straight and your shoulders are back and you can be crooked as anything. Uh, the idea that you can give directions to your body and actually have, you know, very, very specific directions to muscles, which is something that you can't do unless you've trained yourself, which you can learn by means of the Alexander technique. And it all comes down to what Alexander called primary control, which is the head neck relationship. It's, it's the, the weight of, because we're upright, the weight of the skull on the spine is different for people than it is for other mammals. And if you don't hold your head in that poised position, the spine actually winds up getting crushed down and the spine isn't as flexible as it's supposed to be. You wind up getting chronic back pain. And so it's all about the head neck. That is like the fundamental is the head neck uh, relationship. Um, there's a, the, the reason people studied it and the reason it actually, I mean, he did it, his story is that he was a reciter of Shakespeare and he found his voice shut down and he went to the doctors and they couldn't find anything wrong with his voice. And he said, is it something that I'm doing wrong? And uh, they said, I don't know. So he started watching himself in mirrors and he actually, it's it, this is 
his autobiography is called The Use of the Self. This is the only book he wrote that's worth reading, by the way. But it, he tells this story about how he set up all these mirrors and he watched what he was doing and he realized that he was actually like putting his head back like this. Like if you put your head, tip your head back, that actually compresses your whole spine. And that actually has an effect on your breathing. And so he figured out what he needed to do, how to hold his head right and so that his spine would lengthen and he could actually breathe and you know, project his voice, which he needed to do. There were no microphones. This is, you know, this is early 1900s. And uh, then he went back to, to do another Shakespeare re recite, recital. And all the old habits kicked in. And he was like, hey, what's that? I know what I'm supposed to do. But the being in the room with all of the, uh, you know, cues, as it, as it were, all his ad, well, bad habits kicked in. And so he went back to the drawing board about how do you not have the old habits kick in? And that is what his real contribution is. And so this is different from a lot of you may have read the book Atomic Habits, which is a perfectly fine book as well as it goes. It, it you know, it, it drives me crazy because it it just accepts everything that is the common sense view of psychology right now and explains everything in that way. But it's talking about habits and like changing cues is a big thing they recommend you do so that you can uh, break habits. But what Alexander is about is how do you actually look at the habit as a psychological phenomenon, not a behavioral thing where you want to change your reaction to the world, but how do you notice what's going on in your mind? Pause it. He calls it inhibit. I'm going to use pause because I think inhibit is too, people associate it with Freud and with suppression, and that is not what he means. Pausing is a better kind of common sense word for it. How do you pause that action that would be habitual and then direct yourself to do something else? And that is his doing that. Uh, I mean, I, we could argue whether it's introspective work. It's definitely self-awareness work. That is what his big contribution is. And the people who need this the most and who figured out that he had done something really important are performing artists. So, for example, musicians need to be able to move their fingers with great poise and very little tension because they need to be able to move them very, very fast. And that is what this conscious control helps you do. If your neck is all tied up, your hand actually will not move very well. You actually need the whole the extremities work well when the head, neck, spine is, is all in alignment and moving effortlessly and gracefully. Singers need to be able to breathe, musicians too, need to be able to breathe deeply and project. And they need to be able to uh, be able to, you know, put in passion and not shut down anything that's similar to his recital. And this definitely the, it's the tension in your body that gets in the way of the breath. And so this is the way that you can get, you know, deep breathing, which is, you know, if anyone has done any, um, work on deep breathing. It's also very good for your body in general to actually breathe from the diaphragm, that kind of thing. Dancers need poise and grace. They need to, you know, you know how dancers kind of float as they move around, or at least ballet dancers, for example. This is something that it it takes, if, if you, I mean, I used to clump, I still kind of clump around, but I, 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 I don't clump as much as I used to. If you have too much tension, like between your spine and your hips, your legs kind of clump. And if you think of people who you thought would go clump, 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 that's a use issue. And dancers don't do that. But that, you know, if you've habitually got that, you need to not do that. And 
That's what dancers need. And then actors, both of my major Alexander teachers taught at major acting schools. One taught at Juilliard and one taught at NYU in the theater program there. And actors really need this because not only do they need to project their voice, not only do they sometimes need to do you know, delicate maneuvers and have poise and grace, but they also need to play people who have limps and have hunchbacks and various things. And they need to do that without actually messing up their body. Because one of the problems is if you do something habitually uh, or, or just regularly, repeatedly, you start forming bad habits. I mean, I actually just literally this week, I've, I've hurt my wrist and, and I was told I need to keep it above my heart. And so I went around for about three days holding my hand up. And I'll tell you, I got tremendous neck and back pain. I finally realized, okay, it is more important that I keep my body in good function than that I keep my hand up that high or I need to find some alternate way to do it that does not put an extra stress on my shoulders. In just a few days of misusing your body, you can actually create a lot of pain and suffering. So actors need to be able to do this. and They need to be able to do it at will. And so they're the people. So if you if you want an Alexander teacher, the best place to find them are in New York and L.A. because there are very large performing artists populations there. Uh, they're a little more uh, distributed around the country now than they used to be. But it used to be New York and L.A. were the two places you could really find teachers. The other group and the reason I found out about it is if you have chronic neck or back pain. Uh, this offers not a cure. It offers you you can uh, retrain your move, movement to mitigate consequences. So, for, for example, if you have a structural problem, like if you have scoliosis, which causes, you know, your, your, your spine is actually crooked in a way that's not very good for you, that is actually going to cause muscles in your, if you just do the thing that's easy, the muscles on the two sides of your body are going to be, uh, you know, not, not really ideal for everything, all the other parts of your skeleton. And so like, if you learn the Alexander technique, you can actually consciously use your body as if the your spine were straight. You don't actually straighten your spine, but you don't get all of the negative consequences of having acted with that uh, curve. And if you don't, uh, like I didn't have that problem. I had a problem that I, from misuse, not from a structural problem, I hurt my neck. And, um, you know, so there's some arthritis in my neck as a result of uh, basically, basically hovering over a keyboard with my head down for too much. And um, what it does is it gets you to any, any, any muscular things you can undo. You can't change the bones, but you can make sure that you don't do any further damage. And so it, it, so a lot of people, that's how I found out about it. There was an article in the New York Times science section by Jane Brody talking about techniques to help for people with chronic back pain. And she talked about Pilates and Feldenkrais and the Alexander Technique. And I read the three and the Alexander Technique appealed to me because it was about you controlling your body. Whereas Pilates, I mean, both of these other two things I've heard are very good. Pilates, you know, you need machines and you need a coach to help you do the instruction. Feldenkrais, if someone does it to you, they actually help move the bones. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's got some similarities to certain parts of chiropractic. But the Alexander technique is you learn how to control your body by your conscious mind. And that, of course, appealed to me. And so I've been taking 
uh, lessons in this since 1999, since December of 1999. And I've had, uh, oh, you know, I probably had a half a dozen teachers over the years, two main ones in New York, one main one in um, Naples. And I've learned different things from different teachers, but the, one of the reasons I've stayed with it is not just because it was helpful for my body, but also I found it to be extremely interesting psychologically. And I think that's the thing I want to talk about after I say just a little bit more about how it works. I just want to try to make it objective how it works. You know, there is, an, there is a difficulty. If you're trying to teach someone how to use their mind to do something, you can't see into their mind. So how do you teach someone how to do what Alexander was doing, which is to not, you know, not tense up his neck or, you know, pause that and then direct in a different way? How do you do that? Well, Alexander stumbled upon it. He was explaining to his brother what it was he was doing. And the brother wasn't getting it. So Alexander lightly touched the part of his neck that Alexander could see that his neck was not in head was not in the right relationship between to his spine. And the brother got it and you know adjusted his uh posture and saw an instant change. And the same thing with things like uh so so there's a light touch involved, which calls your attention to the muscles that have the undue tension. It turns out what the Alexander teacher training is, is excellent observation skills where they can look at a person and really see where the tension is held. And, and they understand the, there's basically an order that you need to get things right. There's the head neck, so it's, which your neck needs to be free. If your neck is tense, then you actually, your head is going to be like pushing down on your spine and that's going to create problems. So the first thing you need to do is you need to actually free the muscles in your neck which is a very counterintuitive thing to do. The second thing you need to do is you have to let your head go kind of forward and up. You need to have it be sort of perched on top of the spine as opposed to back or forward. And this is again, something that you learn by experience. The third thing is you need to, if those two things have been done, you can let your spine lengthen. And once your spine lengthens, then your legs can kind of, can kind of go away from the hip and your arms can go away from the shoulder shoulder girdle. And they can look at someone and see where the tension is and as a result, kind of guide them into what they need to let go on. Um, I'd like to say a couple of things. This, sure. Uh, he's, um, you said, and I totally believe it, that he has this sort of Aristotelian philosophy and approach. So he's, in that late 19th century, early 20th century legacy of the growing interest in Aristotle, particularly in England uh, at the time, at during that period. Uh, also, I had uh, the experience once, which is rather amazing, of um, attending a session that Jean was taking and I just sat in a chair and tried to follow along. And when she said, neck be free I tried to free my neck and so forth and just listening after 45 minutes the pain in my hip that I had for six months since a tennis injury went away and it did not come back for nine months a new injury I guess which I thought was uh, 
amazing because first of all, I don't believe in relaxation or any of this stuff. You're a pure mind, forget your body. <laughs> but when it hurts, you have to do something. And um, this uh, just listening and trying to follow along uh, did it for me. That, that sold me. Right. Oh, oh. And other people have reported since I started the technique, I have a bigger shirt size. I wear a bigger neck size because my neck is no longer compressed and my chest has expanded. And Jean, you've had uh, things yeah. like that. My and rib cage at a certain point, a couple of years in, my rib cage literally like opened up because there are actually supposed to be joints there. There's actually supposed to be a little bit of space between the ribs and the spine. And I, I had to buy all new clothes for the top of my body because none of the clothes fit anymore. Um, and I also had it, you know, I had, you know, people shrink as they get older. And I was down, I, I had been 5'7 when I was young and I was down to 5'6 and I got back up. I, I don't think I quite made it back up to 5'7, but I, I definitely got over a half an inch higher at the doctor's office as a result of doing the Alexander Technique. So, you know, there are observable changes. And if you guys are interested in the science of it, the best book on that is by a guy named Frank Pierce Jones. He was a professor at Tuft. It's called Body Awareness in Action. And he he did a whole bunch. This was in like the 40s. He did a whole bunch of um, scientific studies where he uh, systematically measured what happens by, by putting like butt, uh, glowing buttons and doing strobe photography and stuff on people using the technique or not using the technique. So if you're interested, that's the resource for that. Um, but the big thing is that they're telling you what to notice in your body and they're giving you words for it. I think the most important thing that, uh, one of the reasons I think Alexander is so important is that he was conceptual and, you know, neck be free, head forward and up, spine length and legs away, shoulders broaden. These are words that you can use. And once you get the words that you can actually do voluntary movement for them, you eventually get what, what I found is I can actually talk to the different muscles in my body. I mean, just recently, uh, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I thought that the hands-on was really critical to learning this. And then during the pandemic, one of my New York teachers started doing video uh, sessions and I got more control over my body as a result of her not having the hands on there and I needed to do all of the work and she I needed to give her more feedback as to what was going on in my body very interesting that it, basically it's controlled awareness of your own body and like I found out that I held a lot of tension in my ankles and and in my wrists and it made a big difference when I recognized that and then learned how to basically tell them to let go which is which brings us to, which I hope that's enough of an overview of what the technique is. Does you think so, Harry? Yeah, it's uh, not a technique of relaxation, right? which a lot of things teach. It's a uh, technique that allows you to take volitional control, conscious volitional control over the state of various muscles and most of them, you want a certain tone and you don't want them clenched. But um, the main thing is you want to only clench if you intend to clench and not clench, you know, not be in spasm uh, involuntarily. Right. Um, someone just mentions 
Oh, thank you for putting in Frank Pierce Jones there. I just was catching up in this. Is it more efficient to learn from someone or to read books? I think you really need to learn from someone because one of the problems is uh, uh, what I forget what the name he had for it was debauched kinesthesia. What it really means is faulty sensory awareness is that you it's difficult unless you look in a mirror. And even if you look in a mirror, if you look in a mirror, it makes it more objective, but you can't see behind your head. You need that extra pair of eyes to be seeing what's going on in your body right now and to be pointing it out to you because then you look at it from the inside. Although I do think the books are helpful. Um, Take video of yourself. What's that, Harry? You can set up a video of yourself and then you can see behind your head and wherever. But you need it in real time. This is a real time yeah. practice. So I, 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 yeah. now Drew Brandenburg says, my biggest complaint about the Alexander technique is that it's called a technique. Why we should call it the Alexander philosophy. It's not a philosophy at all. And one of the things I want to warn you people is don't expect a big explanation of this by Alexander. You know, he has a couple of books where he tries to explain how it works and they are rationalism squared. They are out the, that he does not know what he's doing right. This is a method where you can learn from practitioners, but what I, my contribution is, if, if it's a contribution, is to have made all these observations of my own body and thought about what it means for psychology. And so for, so, I, I I don't really have these in an order. So shall I, if we just plunge in with the first please, one, is that please, okay, please. Harry? So the first thing that I think is really important is his identification of two aspects of volition when you're talking about voluntary motion. There's both the pausing and the directing. He calls it inhibition and direction, but the pausing and directing is two different things. And you have direct control over both of those. Now, this is, don't confuse this with the issue of the choice to focus. The choice to focus is the fundamental choice, but it is not the only thing you have direct volitional control over. If you are in focus, you can actually make these choices to direct or, or pause and make them in such a way that it will be good for your body. If you're out of focus, you can still do these things, but like you can lurch places, which is directing your action in a way that is actually very bad for you. Um, and you can pause in situations where you shouldn't, like you really need to be stepping up and you can pause. So, um, but these two things, I think it's helpful to see that it's, you have two choices and you have those two choices at every time. Uh, Namely? The choice to pause or the choice to direct. So the way that um, one of my teachers talks about is first you set a purpose right? You say, I'm like, I'm going to get up, right? These are really simple actions, right? And then you pause because when you give an instruction, like I need to get up, this is going to trigger a whole bunch of action impulses. And if you don't do anything else, you're going to get up going the way that you have always gotten up. But if you say pause, which is like a, I mean, we put a word on it, it really helps. You say pause, you can actually experience all those action impulses without actually letting them go. And so part one of the things I think is important is realizing that the action impulses come into consciousness automatically. 
This is what normally hap what creates habits is you get an action impulse. And I think what happens is if you do not pause it, you will do it. You will like walk to the refrigerator or get up in the way that you've always gotten up or whatever it is, or raise your hand. I, I do this sometimes, you know, when you say raise your hand, you know, I mean, did, I don't know if you guys saw my, I just noticed in the video, I'm going to do it again. What did my head do when I raised my hand? I, I, I just noticed my head went forward when I raised my hand. There's no reason for my head to go forward. If instead raise my hand and pause, let my neck be free, let my head go forward and up and I can raise my hand and I can keep my head in a completely poised way. But if I don't, I mean, I, that was, I did not intend to give that particular example. I just noticed it when I raised my hand without actually directing that my head moved. And of course, this is not good. If you're using extra muscles to do a really simple movement, uh, first of all, it makes you more awkward and clumsy. But second of all, it actually, you know, tires you out in various ways. And it means the poise and and speed comes from lack of tension. And if you're moving your body in a way with extra tension, you actually can't move as quickly or as poised. Um, but the thing that I got from, from learning this is to actually notice action impulses, which I don't think we notice most of the time. So these are real things. You know, Magda Arnold talks about action impulses in her books on psychology, but they're like a real thing that you can notice and they're, you know, they're nonverbal. So they're not, you, you can't really, you, you have to kind of be paying attention to the fringes and you need to pause at that time that you intend, you tell yourself to act, to even notice them, but they're real and they're in consciousness. And so this is one of the things I think is important is the impulses get generated, I think as part of emotions and as part of habits, but they are conscious phenomenon that you have conscious control over. And that I think is very important. This is an example where it's not the subconscious, quote unquote, that's causing you to move. The subconscious is creating an action, you know, is creating an action impulse. Whether you move or not is up to you and your volition. So this is, you know, there's an agency here that I think people are not aware of. They feel like they are at the mercy of their habits or, you know, just the habits are there and, oh, well, that's the habit. But that is not true. You really do have volitional control. I think that's a very important psychological point. And can I interrupt with just one observation about what you did? Sure. Okay. Um, when you raised your hand, I wrote this in the, in the comments too. Um, it seems like your head went forward to maintain center of gravity and it was compensating. Yeah, but it doesn't need to. Right. I understand. Right. But it looked like that would explain why it happened automatically. Yeah who knows how I had that habit. And, you know, and there is a thing like there are different body types, like people who are all in their head tend to lead with their head. Right. Um, and uh, so who knows where I got that habit, but yeah, I'm sure there was maybe some reason, but there's absolutely no reason. If you, if you actually ground yourself and get your spine centered, you can raise your hand with just total poise. And so anyway, but thanks Jay. Um, I don't know, did, did you have anything you want to say on that point, Harry? I think it's an important point and it's it's a kind of a subtle psychological thing. A question. Uh, I get urges. That's not quite the same as an action impulse, right? Well, an urge has an action impulse, right? It's an urge to do something. Yeah. But it's also, there's probably like ice cream at the other end of that urge. Yeah, too. there right. is often, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that action impulses are part of uh, emotions, but right? So you, have, you can, uh, you can, they're distinct. You can differentiate yes. the action part from the desire part. Right. There's the affect yeah. part, the action part, and the, um, and the evaluation part. I think there are those three things that make up an emotion. And it's the combination that makes a distinctive emotion. So desire has, um, you know, the idea that this thing would be good and you can get it, right? Mm -hmm. And it has the action impulse to get it now. And it has um, the, uh, what, how would you describe the affect of desire? It's if you think you can you get it, it's can. a positive, right? You can't, you can't break it down any further. If you've right. never experienced desire, you can't have it explained to you and then get it. Well, no, I but I think it's helpful. I mean, we all had experienced desire. I think it's helpful to look at these three aspects of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. But the affect uh, part is the desire part, which you can't uh, explain. Well, I, you I, can't. I, you can't communicate it in words. It's an ultimate primary. Right. Well, you can say generally it's it's. I mean, desire can be in both positive and negative, right? I mean, if it's if you want it and you can get it, it's got a positive affect associated. If you want it and you can't get it, it's got a negative. So it's but anyway, okay, great. Um let's see. So here's the second thing that I got that I think is actually important for psychology. So it turns out I held tremendous tension in my body. And uh, as you know, it, it and it let go in waves. As I said, at a certain point, my ribs opened up, which was like really amazing. I like I couldn't. It turned out I couldn't really breathe deeply until that happened. And uh, what happens with different layers of of tension being released is you get emotional reactions. And I, I do think this this really convinced me that part of um, that there is such a thing as muscle memory, which I, muscle memory, not in the sense of how to do something, but muscle memory in the sense that this is an extended part of your storage of events that, you know, when 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 something would release a whole bunch of memories would get triggered. And the tension from the past when at the time that that bad thing or whatever it was happened, because it's always bad stuff that is held as tension, that kind of got stayed in and locked in in the muscles. And part of releasing it was actually processing the emotions around the time when that tension had happened. You look like you want to say something, Harry. Are you a kinesthetic person? Uh, I'm a visual person. People have preferred uh, styles. I don't think I have any memories connected with uh, muscular states well so this is another point that i think is actually important for the science of psychology because i don't think i mean you've had how many how many alexander lessons have you had two three i don't know if you would consider it a lesson i'm not sure it would be more than one depending upon i mean sylvie is not I, doing alexander on me well it's you know yeah so, I mean, but anyway, I mean, this is not something that you get in the first session. I mean, I didn't even understand what it meant for my neck to be free until about six weeks in. Yeah. 
This is something that happened over years. I mean, I've been doing this for 24 years, so I have a lot of experiences here. And it's not, this is the kind of thing where, uh, if I, so this is, this is one, actually the difficulties, I think, in a real proper science of psychology, because the, the, you know, the old, old time uh, psychologists were right in that you need to be a trained observer. And I don't, I, no offense, Harry, but this is, this is not, I mean, I might've been a little bit more um, attuned to this when I first started taking Alexander lessons, but if you took 10 years or even three years of Alexander lessons, you would have a lot more awareness of your body, which you don't have. And you don't have it because you haven't developed that. Now you didn't think you needed it. That's okay. I'm I, I, No offense. But I do think that this is something that I learned because I became a skilled observer. I mean, as I said, this is what the Alexander teachers become. They become skilled observers of other people. But I think if you take lessons for a long time, you become a skilled observer of yourself. And, you know, I've said this, this drives you crazy, but Harry, but I actually think that this kind of training could be the basis for people to find, to learn introspection, because I, I think some people are just not very self-aware. They just they don't notice what's going on in their head. And it's a little easier to learn what's going on in your body in the sense that a teacher can see what's going on in your body and call your attention to it. And, um, no, I have no problem with that. If, um, I have no problem with the idea that a person who's not self-aware could begin more easily with bodily self-awareness. Yeah, right. And I think that there's a there's something. So, I mean, there's the genus is self-awareness that mm -hmm. that turning and looking in because body awareness it's from the inside. It's not you don't look in a mirror for this. You you use you know the eyes in the back of your head and notice what's going on in the back of your neck or in your legs or whatever it is it's a very um it's proprioception but it yeah. has the you know people who who don't pay attention to themselves that's as you said that's a genus and this would be the beginning maybe of right. paying attention to yourself but right exactly the same as paying attention to your mind but you usually right. it it involves it because you use your mind in a different way yeah. to um train yourself to be aware of the muscles that's it you have to know about different ways of using your mind and that's introspective yes yes and because you're doing this you also notice emotions and things so it looks like drew has um done a bunch of Alexander training. Maybe you'd like to unmute, Drew. But I think this is very interesting. Could you tell us this story of that the first year lesson, first lesson, the feeling was so foreign that you almost threw up? Do you mind sharing that? You put it in the chat. It looks like you're unmuted. No, I'm not he's, hearing putting it. he's putting on headset. Hey, uh, can y'all hear me now? Sure. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, that was uh, quite a quite an experience. The the teacher was guiding me through the principles of what I learned later was the primary technique of uh, releasing the neck uh, tension in my neck and monitoring the position of my head. And um, I don't know if any of y'all were athletes or have trained, but uh, people can train to the point where they throw up, like the body is having such a adverse reaction to the training that it forces them to throw up. Yeah, that was the exact same feeling that I got 
from the from just standing there. I was just standing there, and I I had to sit down. If I didn't sit down, I would have thrown up right there in his office. Wow. And it was it was so foreign to me. I couldn't. It wasn't really until later, especially starting learning objectivism, that I could actually start making sense of what happened to me. Right. Yes, it is. It's a weird experience. I mean, they have things like they have you stand and sit and it's like you feel like you're going to fall over, but it turns out you don't or that you stand up with so little tension. It's like, really, you can stand up that way? What? It's like you floated into the air. How did that happen? It's a very weird experience. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Dean, you come home sometimes with a, a muscle quivering somewhere. <laughs> Which I mean, I still amazing. get that. Huh? Yeah, I, I still get that, that my there's a, the tension between my legs and my hips. I, if I go into the rest position and start directing, my legs start shaking, which is the tension, the tension basically being dissipating is what it is. We're, we're talking about, you know, you can see a muscle yeah. quivering in her, in her thigh. Yeah. I, I early on there was one night where I couldn't sleep the whole night because my legs were shaking. It's very strange. <laughs> a lot of weird experiences. Um, oh, and then here's the other thing. So this is also something that is controversial. But just being more aware of body tension, I actually think this is a really important thing to understand with respect to emotions. I think that a major way that people suppress emotions is um, by uh, tensing up the muscles, which actually, what it does is it um, obfuscates what is going on in your body. Let me just answer the question Jay put in the chat. Is the shaking muscle fatigue? My understanding is that this is, I don't have a really good scientific explanation for this, but my understanding is that, uh, you know, the muscle had been like, it had been like under tension in some position for a long time. And that the when you change the instructions to that muscle, there's a kind of a, um, that when it's letting go, it like, it pulses basically back and forth. It's like- it There's pulses. no exercise involved in the- Yeah, there's uh, no exercise. Uh, there's it's no fatigue. Uh, you may be, muscle may be fatigued from years of being over tense. Right, spasms, I think is the right word. It's basically kind of spasms. And the effect is after it does that a few times, it's like it works the muscle in and out and then it can actually go into the relaxed state. It's it's a very weird experience. <laughs> Happens to me all the time, actually. <clears throat> um, Audrey says, what is the cause for needing benefiting from the Alexander technique? Could someone theoretically not need the technique? Well, I think people who are natural athletes have, for whatever reason, used their bodies in a great way. And they, they and you know, there are, ways that um you know that they have like a, a ballet dancer that i know but i was telling her about it she said oh well i always keep my head up by thinking of a string back behind my head and so there are things like that that you hear about but you know she had tremendous poise and she had not misused her body right so maybe she didn't need it now on the other hand the reason it is mandatory training at juilliard for all their all of the students at Juilliard have mandatory training in the Alexander technique, because if you are a performing artist, you need self-awareness about this to make sure you don't build up some bad habits or don't uh, injure your body because your entire career depends on your being able to have your body function the way it needs to function. 
So, you know, so it's just one of these things. I mean, the thing that brought me to it was a particular problem. Not everybody needs it, but I do actually think that everybody would benefit from it. Uh, I, I mean, I, but, you know, their priorities. Sure, everybody would benefit from it. Give me a, Harry, what else would everybody benefit from? Everyone, everybody would oh, benefit like in from the your Alexander, In the Alexander yeah. uh, uh, technique? Uh, taking your logic course. Everybody would benefit from taking your oh. logic course. But there are oh, priorities, yeah. right? I, I see what you mean. Yeah. I thought you wanted to know what, where the benefits are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So different people uh, will benefit from different amounts of it. Uh, that is different. Right. That's obvious. Okay. Okay. And so that that was the last thing I want to say was about um, the relation to emotions. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, it, it really, it's, it's informed my understanding of motivation, both because of the action impulses and also because of um, the effect of body tension on how you feel. And so I, I feel like I can introspect my emotions much more carefully. I had another weird experience. This wasn't an Alexander experience, but it, I think it concretizes the point. I had a friend, you know, I have, I mean, I have a lot of friends from the National Speakers Association who do not have the same philosophical context that I have, yeah. but a lot of them have very interesting takes on things. And, and actually a good friend of mine gave, had thought a lot about the mind-body connection. She was an actress, actually, prior to, she's actually pretty well-known soap opera actress before uh, becoming a speaker. And she did, she had this thing where she ran a um, program where we were connecting mind and body. And the idea was we started out with some mind work where we all had some big issue that we didn't know how we could get over. And I had something, a particular issue with a particular person. And she had us do some like, oral thought work about it, right? About, well, what does this mean? And and she said, where in your body is the pain associated with this problem? And which I thought was a very weird question, but as soon as I asked, it was like, it was in my left thigh. I swear it was in the front of my left thigh, which was very weird, but I got that answer. So it's like the left thigh started, you know, tensing when she asked this question. Okay, so that's weird. Then she had us climb a wall. This is the first time I'd ever climbed an indoor wall. You know, we did it at the um, Chelsea Piers in New York. And I swear, this really happened two thirds of the way up the hall, the wall. My left leg started shaking uncontrollably. I mean, I had to just kind of stand there and cling on while my left leg was going like crazy. My, my left thigh, literally undid something in that moment. Now, this is weird, right? This is weird. And, and I don't really expect you to believe it like as an act on faith, but it's these kinds of experiences that convinced me that big issues get stored as tension in the body. And you can even see it if you, if you, if someone is having, is under a lot of stress, you can just see it in their bodies. You can see that they're hunched up. You can see, like, sometimes you can see on um, television, if you look at the newscasters, look at what the their face is and see if one side is more crunched than the other. That is a classic case of undue tension. And I, I, if you guys remember Greta Van Susteren, she used to have a really lopsided face and it was one side was completely tense, which is an indication that she was under some kind of stress. And uh, 
but it just was a dramatic example that even I could see without a lot of training. So I think that that's also very important for understanding emotions and understanding their visceral nature and being able to control yourself because you can have these uh, experiences because emotions can be particularly, I mean, for people who are not at all repressed, emotions can be very overpowering. And when you have that physical control over your body and you can just, you know, pause and let your neck be free, it, you can really get yourself back into a better state. It's actually part of what I use, you know, in the happiness talk I gave, not this year, but last year, I talked about the importance of getting to serenity. If you're suffering, which includes being in pain, getting to serenity. And from there, it's not so hard to get up to various levels of happiness. And this is one of the things that I use to get to serenity, because if you're in physical pain, being able to get your body into a neutral poised state really mitigates the pain. And it, and and there's a positive affect that comes with that, which is um, which is under your volitional control. And so I think that's also very important from a psychological point viewpoint. Oh, I'd like to say something, a couple of things. First of all, I think that people differ in how muscular kinesthetic they are. Uh, but that's just an aside. The main point is that this pause idea is really big. It's, mm -hmm. it, I don't think Gene has stressed it enough that when you have an emotion that you don't necessarily want to act on you it's not like oh i gotta leave i forgot and you do want to act on it uh you can pause you just you know how people say well when you get really angry count to 10 yeah, it helps <laughs> when you get really ravenous for that snack that breaks your diet if you can pause and count to 10 if you have to and it's amazing how lessened the motivation is by that so you're in control of that and i think it's wider than emotions even uh yeah. gene i think it's a basic act of yes free will as you said yeah. that yes. um in regard to anything you can you have the power to just say okay let's let's wait for a few seconds and see how it looks then and it's amazing what a difference it can make uh, so I think, you know, I talk, I have talked in my lecture but for you about hitting the enter button. Yes. You know, you can make up your mind, but then you need to do it. But uh, this is the opposite. Yes. It's not suppression, uh, but it is just, okay, let's wait a minute. Yes. And that's actually, I didn't say that much about direction. You know, my business name is Thinking Directions. Think Directions is a hat tip to FM Alexander. Because, you know, he's got his two things in direction. That's the positive. And this, the enter button that Harry's talking about, that's if you, you know, when, if you, if you do not act on an action impulse, you will just be in a pause state unless you very intentionally say, okay, and I'm going to raise my hand this way. Or I'm going to let, you know, you need to take over with another instruction. You need to be very purposeful to actually go into other into action. Otherwise you will not act. And so I think that's a very important part. It's not just that you yeah. want to pause the habitual action, but you want to direct the conscious action. Now, Audrey says something in the chat, which I think I, I just want to clarify. She says, I know mindfulness is conceptually contended among some objectivists, 
but an essential part of mindfulness is pausing before acting, concluding on thoughts, feelings, and urges. So my view is not that there's a problem with most of the teaching of mindfulness. My problem is that the concept is the concept is a kitchen sink, which I, I don't think is actually helpful. It's too big of an umbrella. But a lot of the exact, of course, I'm completely in favor of the kinds of things you're talking about. And, you know, Gina is recommends certain books on mindfulness. Gina Gorland does. I, I'm sure those books are helpful. It's um, this controversy came up because Ed Locke was concerned about using this concept. And, you know, in objectivism, we're very big on getting the right concept. And that is the thing. I think I agree with Ed that this is not the best concept to use. Is it the one that's in the popular culture? Yes. Is it a hodgepodge? Yes. Does that mean you can't learn anything from people who are saying they're pro-mindfulness? You can absolutely learn some things. You just need to use your philosophical. Yeah, like, like meditation is yes, another exactly. one like that. Right. Sometimes yeah. it's, it's a valuable uh, taking of a break and clearing your mind. But yes. the term comes from religion and mysticism. So right. it, it's often overlaid with something you wouldn't endorse. Right. So it's it, that's, it's a conceptual issue. Um, Jay says regarding the thigh shaking on the first rock climbing, I can see this as using muscles in ways has not been used and it fatigues quickly in this new use. Yes, but how is it that prior to it, when I was asked where was the tension held, it was in that thigh. I mean, that was weird. It's because of having been asked the question before and having, you know, pointed there, right there, this muscle, and then that muscle is the one that released. That's the weird things, guys. No, that is the very weird thing. And uh uh, someone asked, Reed asked, does it help lower arthritis back pain? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's what I had. It was my neck, but it helped a lot. And I had some in my lower back. Ellen, you wanted to, I know you've taken lessons in the Alexander technique. Um, based on what you told me years ago, I had about three yeah. years of lessons um, weekly. And it, my shoulders from carrying kids and from carrying books were all hunched in, tense. My Alexandra teacher couldn't even put them back, not that you're supposed to. And I was able to release my shoulders for the most part. And I brought in my chair and she taught me how to get in and out of my own private chair properly. Um, the one thing I want to say regarding the shaking or the muscle tension that I used in therapy many times, if I was with a client who was really struggling and their legs start shaking a mile a minute, I would say, let your leg talk. What would your legs say if it could? Or what would, um, if they're clenching, what would your fists say right now? And it would be amazing what would come out that it's a gestalt technique too. But of course, there, it's the same, it's the connections that you're making that I just think are amazing. And the directions, the pausing in directions, I think are fundamental. That, that, thank you, Ellen. You know, I didn't realize it was so widespread, but it certainly happens if you take Alexander lessons. It makes sense that it would happen occasionally in therapy too. It's um, there's it's something about how you know when when a when an upsetting situation happens and you tense up, that is integrated with the bad experience and the evaluations you're making at that time, and it is tied into your the way that that event is stored. So great. Um, I got to read Drew's quote. This is a favorite quote about the Alexander technique. Quote, the pain may be local, but the misuse is global. Yes, that's everything's connected. And you you may be just doing this. Like 
like like the example in one of these. So I have two other books to mention if people are interested. One is The Actor's Secret, which I have recommend on my website. And she has, I just looked for a picture. She has a picture of a person answering the phone by tilting their head, which will give you a crick in the neck and uh, versus doing it without doing that, which it requires direction. But she's, that's, if I, if you want to try to understand what it is from a book, this is the best book that actually gives you some things to try while you're reading it. And then the other book, which is pretty famous, actually, Michael Gelb, he's the guy who wrote How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, which some of you may have read. And he he's a trained Alexander teacher. And he wrote this book, Body Learning, which a lot of people, when I first was in it, people recommended this as the best book on it. And it's very interesting. There's a picture in here of him running next to another runner, doing hands-on while the guy is running to try to get his head in the right position as he's running, which I I need that. I need a tennis instructor who knows the Alexander technique so I can learn to uh, play tennis a little more gracefully. So that's Body Learning by Michael Gelb, which is also a, a good book on this. Uh, that would be a good idea, uh, tennis. There, there are such people, but I don't know of one in Naples, right? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I'm very uh, aware of in tennis, if you're doing it right, it looks graceful. If you're doing it wrong, it looks clumsy and staccato, you know? Right, right. Um, there were a couple more questions in the chat. Shall I just go through them? Yeah. Jose asks, is the meditative position called the lotus a good position? Um, when I started, I, I, I actually, he says motivation, but I think he may mean meditation. I was far from being able to get into it, but it served as a great reference point to work toward. So one of the things that's also really important about Alexander, which I'm really glad you asked this question because I say it, you know, his whole point is all, it's not about getting to a particular position. So he was really anti some of the postural things that were done like in the military where people had to put their neck back and stand erect and that kind of thing. He was opposed to that because he thought, what you needed to be able to do was in the moment, use your body in a way that was good for your body. And that was, that could be almost any position, but it all had to do with how you were controlling it, not getting to a fixed position. The one thing I would say about the lotus position is it's, if you're doing it right, all your weight is on your sit bones. And that turns out to be very important. If all, all the weight from the spine needs to be supported well, and it, if you're standing, it needs to be supported well on your feet. And if you're sitting, it needs to be supported well on your sit bones. And that's probably what you learned with the lotus position. And it's so important to actually get that uh, feedback. You actually get the feedback from your feet is important. I actually do not use a padded chair. I actually sit on a stool with just a towel for padding so that I can really tell that I'm on my sit bones when I'm sitting because it's so important for me when I'm sitting to make sure that I sit up as opposed to slump over. Uh, um, is not an understood phrase. Uh, well, I could point so out where they the are. Wheels, the wheels so, of the pelvis. So if you sit on a hard chair, there are two points, one on either side of the, uh, I, I don't know what the, I think it's the pe pelvic girdle is what it is. There's oh. one bone in each side of, you know, of your bottom that will start to feel some pressure. Those are your sit bones. And that's where all the weight from the from your torso needs to be supported. 
And if you are slumping, like if you slump, I don't know here if I can do this for now. Not that I'm the greatest demo here, but here, this is all my weight is on my sit bones. But if I slump, I've actually now, I, I don't know if you can tell this, the weight is some, somehow now on my butt instead of on the bones. And the bones are designed to take the weight. And one of the problems you get into is if you put the weight on the muscles or something else, as opposed to let the bones actually take the weight, you wind up, your muscles do all kinds of crazy things to counteract for that. And um, uh, so that's, I hope that's helpful. I'm going to share my screen because I have a picture that I think is it. Um, share screen. Yeah, I'll put the books in the chat. Let me uh, type, try to type that in right now, actually. So it's, it's the two things at the bottom. Oh, have I shared? Are you seeing this, the pelvis? Yes, we're seeing it. And I think it's those two bottom bones. That's what would actually hold you. Well, actually, I, I'm not sure of the orientation, but yeah. I think right. it's that part, which is sometimes called the wheels. And I don't know the medical name for it. A hip bone segment coccyx. Well, the coccyx is the this coccyx part. is in the back. That's where the tail yeah. is. Yeah, so it's um, called the uh, ischial tuberosities. Ischial moral tuberosities. Thank you. Um, known informally as the sit bones. <laughs> you want to <laughs> stop that share, Harry? Yes. Okay. Um. Uh, here's Ulrich says, Thank do you, you know whether, whether tension-induced pain is causally related to fibromyalgia? I have suspicions. I don't have expertise in that area, but I do think, I mean, this has helped people with fibromyalgia, and it does seem from the people I know who have had it, that there is some misuse associated with fibromyalgia, which causes that incredible, you know, pain that they get all over. Um, Jerry asked, does mastering this technique mean you are, you are able to control change your automatized bo bodily moves in real time, e.g. while talking to an audience? Yes. At, right. The, the whole point is to get real time control. And you, you go to the lessons and then, and you do, like I do actually daily um, self lessons. But the idea is if I just remember to do it, I can in the middle of a talk without saying anything to anybody, let my neck be free and get my feet on the floor. And it makes a huge difference. It's um, Michael Gelb also has a book, I think it's titled Present Yourself, which is on using the Alexander technique to have poise in front of an audience. It's like a known thing. This is another aspect of the performing arts part of it. Um, and then he says, or do you have, you have to learn it, practice it, and the result is newly automatized bodily moves, which you wish to have, but you are still unable to control in real time. No, that's the beauty of it. It's not habitual. It's the whole point is you are never at the mercy of your habits. Once you have this kind of introspective control over your body, you are able to always choose a better way. And that's why it's not getting to a particular position. 
That's so it's anti-habit. It's the exact opposite of habits. I hope that's clarifying. Aha. What do I think of sitting on a large exercise ball? I hate sitting on a large exercise ball because on a large exercise ball, you don't actually have a way to ground your weight. And I think, and I had a friend of ours bought a um, seat that looked like a mushroom. And the idea was you'd always need to be wiggling to adjust and oh my God, it just kills you. It, it, it actually causes so much undue tension. We tried it, the person decided didn't like and gave it to us. Harry tried and didn't like it. I tried it. It was a disaster from a good use point of view. So there are all kinds of crazy theories people have about what would be good for chairs. What's good for chair is a straight chair with a little bit of padding. That's what's good for a chair. Dan, you had a question? Uh, yeah, I was wondering. I just Googled and uh, saw um, one Alexander Technique teacher near us. More, uh, up in Denver, do you have any tips on how to evaluate, um, you know, if you're with somebody good? Because I'm sure as with anything yes. else, some are better than others. Yes. So I uh, actually, I did mention to mean to say this. Um, my teachers were the most conceptual school from what I can tell is what's called AMSAT. It's the American Society. Uh, I just have it up here. American Society for the Alexander Technique. And they are the most conceptual because there were, you know, he had a number of primary students. These come out of the Walter Carrington School. Probably in the UK, there are still people who were trained by Walter Carrington, which is the same thing that's in America. He died, Walter Carrington died about 20 years ago. And um, they are the ones that are most focused on you getting the concepts and they talk to you the entire time. And they're telling you, okay, let your neck be free. Okay, notice what that tension is here. Can you undo that a little bit? They talk to you the entire time. They give you the words. They're the best teachers. Now, you can still get some benefit from people from other schools. I have had lessons from people from other schools, but they tend to teach it more, do it more as something that they, you, they do for you. And so I don't find that as valuable. And they don't also, they, the other thing I notice about the AMSAT teachers is that they're very focused on trying to understand it and conceptualize it and explain it. And so every AMSAT teacher will have a skeleton and they will bring up Mr. Bones. And as they're talking about level, well, your scapulas are doing this. And what we want to try to do is undo. And that helps you to then visualize your bones and get in touch with whatever muscles are doing whatever it is they're doing. So um, if you can get an AMSAT teacher, I would generally recommend that. And the, go ahead. The good ones want to teach, the bad ones want to manipulate. Yeah, right. Or get you to manipulate. Lee says, yes, that's right. Lee says anti-habit or anti-bad habit? Anti-habit. That's one of the things that's so interesting about it is good use needs to be in the moment as opposed to, because the the um and doing it fresh which is actually really helpful for creativity also so it's definitely anti-habit uh oh drew says he doesn't like the term technique because they people think of it as a series of positions so maybe the alexander method maybe that would be helpful um jose says i'm also curious about posture and teeth 
Yeah, I was looking at that. I don't understand it. So, I mean, certainly true. If you get tension in your mouth, that's going to affect a lot of other things. And I've had, I had a problem with uh, TMJ at one point. Alexander Technique did help, but actually specific relaxation exercises for my jaw helped for that too. So, uh, but, but this thing is on things that have been learned like that can be unlearned is what I'd like to say. Harry, I noticed it's 107. I got, yeah, I I got talking. Should, and we had some other subjects for the chat, at least. One. Oh, I mean, that's says, the, the after party. Right. I just have to say one other thing. Stammering is actually one of the other things people go to the Alexander Technique for, because it does help with uh, the conscious control of your body. So it can help with stammering. Did Ellen want to say something else? Um, just uh, Jean actually mentioned it, but I'll underscore it. My second Alexandra teacher had a full um, size human skeleton and she would bring me over to it all the time. And it was just wonderful. It, it just it, that she would conceptualize exactly what was going on. The first Alexandra teacher did not because she was afraid that I was too intellectual and that I would um, I would try to do things rather than experience them. So I, very different approaches. What I find interesting about as a as a one time participant is that you can say things to your muscles where you're not aware of anything happening. Mm -hmm. Neck be free. And, you know, I'm trying, but I don't, neck be free. But actually something does happen. You can't always feel it. But actually um, things that I felt, you know, well, nothing's happening. Hey, wait a minute. My pain has gone away that I've had for nine months. <laughs> you know, so uh, it's not like, oh, yeah, I did. You told me that oh, I let go and then everything fell into place. It's not like that. At least it wasn't for me. Jane, do you agree with that or what? Uh, yeah, you don't always, and, and I've heard this from other people, you don't always see what's going on. I tended to, I tended, and this is probably being more kinesthetic. I tended to see at least a notice a little bit all, all the time, but yeah, a little, um, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But one other thing about my being more kinesthetic, you know, I've become more visual after playing per quacky with you, Harry. So this is one of the things we notice is Harry visualizes the words. I now visualize the words which I didn't used to do. So this is also trainable, I really believe. It just means that you, you start out with one thing being more comfortable. What? Let, why don't we let Lee have the last word before break? Okay. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm a little, oops. Yeah, I guess I'm all right. I'm a little surprised by the anti-habit idea. Habits are the result of automatization. If you automatize things well, what that enables you to do is direct your conscious, conscious attention elsewhere that you couldn't do before. So uh, it's very, uh, so good hab appropriate habits are essential for good performance. So for example, in, in bat let's take basketball, you, you develop some habits of, you know, dribbling and, and uh, shooting and other actions. If you try to adjust too much that stuff during the game, the other guy's gonna take the ball away from you. You're gonna, your performance will degrade tremendously. 
So uh, uh, good habits are absolutely essential. I want to have good a job before, before you do, Gene. And then, um, the, every habit is an automatization, but not every automatization is a habit. So she's, uh, you, you do want to use automatizations. You can't live without using automatizations, but you want to be in uh, control of those rather than unconsciously uh, be at the mercy of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, of and course. Maybe I, of course. maybe I overstated Lee because, um, because I said only, I said all habits, anti all habit. And he said, isn't it just anti bad habits? And I guess what it is, is that there are certain things where it is so automatized that uh, you, well, two things. One is you need to pause and direct to make sure that the right habit gets done. Because if you just let the impulse that comes up completely automatically, you don't get it. But then like, when, once I actually let my neck be free and I like set the context, then I can raise my hand sort of from a different context and I can do it right. So, so it's, you're, you're probably right. It's not anti all have it because that doesn't make any sense. I, I, I agree with you. Well, it's certainly not anti all automatizations. Certainly that, not. That right. would be impossible. Yeah. Right. Okay. okay. Uh, let's let's stop here and uh, go to the after party. So Gene will stop recording and then we can resume. Okay. Thank you for coming and thanks Gene for that very interesting session. Uh, and we will continue next week with uh, another topic.